Welcome to Kart Class, brought to you by 18 times Australian champion David Serra. Kart Class strives to give kart racing drivers the fundamental driving skills, kart setup, and the mindset required to take you from beginner to winner. Your host, David Serra, has over 25 years' experience in kart racing and is the most successful driver in Australian history. Hey guys, unfortunately, I missed the first five minutes of our chat with Oscar Piastri. Having not interviewed drivers for about a year, I realised after about five minutes of our chat that I actually didn't have the SD card in, which is a rookie mistake. So I want to try and do a quick recap on what you may have missed and where the chat's going to start from. So Oscar Piastri, he started his motor racing career actually doing remote control car racing. And he just did that with his grandfather and his dad at a local remote control car racing place. From there, he wanted to get more involved and actually start to drive himself. And that's when he got into kart racing at the age of 10. So he did kart racing at the Oakley Kart Racing Club in Melbourne, Victoria. And I asked him whether he, it came naturally to him, kart racing. And Oscar said that he could pick up things quite quickly. So he would get close to the speed, but then he couldn't win races because he didn't have the experience level compared to some kids that have been racing for two or three years before him. When we sort of talking about kart racing, it was like from the remote control car racing, it got his reflexes and that muscle memory happening very, very fast. And that transition to kart racing, it had him switched on from a very young age. So that was one of the sort of key benefits that he thought that the remote control car racing had to start his kart racing career. Now, I sort of asked him, when did you take karting seriously enough to think that you could have a professional career? And he sort of said that he raced in Australia in kart racing until he was about 14 years of age. So four years of kart racing in Australia, doing it for fun, and not really having that aspiration to make a career in, in motor racing, but didn't necessarily think at that stage that was going to be a possibility. It was at the age of 14 when Oscar went across to Europe to race for the Ricky Flynn Motorsports team in the junior category that he sort of thought that, okay, things are getting bigger over here, things are getting more serious, and potentially a motor racing career is beckoning. And I basically just asked him, what are some of the sacrifices that he had to make to basically leave a country like Australia, which is so far away from Europe at such a young age? And one of Oscar's biggest things was saying that he had to leave his family and friends behind. Although his dad did travel across to London with him for the first six months, from there on he had to build new friendships and basically learn how to live by himself and take care of himself with schooling, with racing and the demands that that takes on you. In saying that, he did say that if you wanted to get recognized by any motor racing teams or be taken seriously, then Europe was the place to be. Where we're going to start up this chat is basically from, I asked him the question of, how does your mindset change from when you're looking to chase points in a championship? So if you're you know, in that mid-pack or you're in second or third in the championship, or how do you change your mindset for currently he's winning the Formula 2 championship? Does that mindset change in regards to just trying to salvage points? now that you're the one who's being attacked from other drivers out there. I hope you enjoyed today's chat with Oscar Piastri. From here on in, we've got plenty more motor racing guests that I hope you guys can listen to. We've had the pace this year to be able to extend further. And I think that's also a much more positive mindset than sort of going into survival and just, just hanging on. So I think that's an important one. But at the same time, obviously, when you're leaving the championship, you've got to do a bit more risk management and when you're behind obviously particularly when it gets to the end of the year you've got nothing to lose if you're chasing down the gap so I think the risk management side of things does come into play and you know I think that's been something that I've done well in my career and and being pretty consistent so I think that's that's the one side where things do need to change from 
probably a bit earlier than the final round. But, you know, I think in terms of striving for wins and results, um, you, you still need to try and go out there and win because you never know what's going to happen. And, you know, you, you could have a mechanical old mate could take you out the next race and all of a sudden your points gap's all gone and or maybe you're the, the guy trying to chase someone else down. So you've got to manage it very carefully and, and still try and, and win because that, at the end of the day, that's the best way to maintain your points gap is to beat everyone else still. So, like, after qualifying, for example, like, especially even with, with kart racing championships, do you sort of look at, you know, where old mate in second is in the championship? Like, where did he qualify? And how's it going to play out after the reverse grid races? Like, do you sort of take it uh, like a race by race compared to the guys you're around? Or do you look at it and say, you know, we're stronger in the longer races, so that comes to our own advantage and, you know, I don't have to worry about those guys because we're confident in our own ability to, um, you know, just to beat them on their own merits? I think probably a little bit of both. You know, I think once, especially once you get sort of into the thick of a championship, you kind of know roughly where your strengths are and where other people's strengths are. So you can kind of look at it that way. But in saying that, you know, in karting, it's maybe a little bit less unpredictable minus the first corner because, yeah, in car racing, we have so many different variables um, that that can go wrong, like Silverstone this year, for example, was a, a classic example of that we were super quick the whole weekend, and I think in race two I set fastest lap by nine tenths or something, and then went into race three and we had no pace, and I think I finished sixteen seconds off the lead in a, a twenty-seven lap race. So you know, I think that is often a little bit dangerous to look at it that way in terms of this should be the result or whatever. Motorsport often goes, no, that shouldn't be the result. It's whatever I want it to be. Mainly it's it's just looking at it race by race because you've got to qualify well first. You know, after that, you've still got to try and beat the guy in, in the reverse grid races because I think more often than not, we're, we're fighting at the front of the championship for reasons that we're always kind of going to be near each other on the track with qualifying. So I think trying to beat him or at least keeping an eye on where he is in the races is an important one. But like I said, the best way to firstly extend the gap and also put pressure on the other guy is to keep beating and you know reduce the amount of races they have to, to try and chase you down. So looking at it in the moment is, is for the most part, the, the best way of looking at it. And growing up from Australia, uh, V8 supercars is sort of the prime time motorsport that most of the kids see. It's the Bathurst 1000 and it's the races like that. When you started kart racing, was V8 supercars ever a thing for you? Was that something that you watched or grew up watching or was it always the Formula One dream? Yeah, I definitely watched supercars. And to be honest, I would say I watched it a lot more than F1. I think everyone dreams that, but obviously coming from Australia and you know, I think even just sort of the personality i have and the way i am it seems so far away because firstly from a logistical point of view and distance point of view it is a long way away (laughs) but also you know you just start again carding you don't really think that's possible they kind of seem like superheroes that have their own little world also didn't help that most of the f1 races are on at like midnight or 1am so i would say the f1 sort of dream you know was there but i i was never I, I never really knew if I wanted to chase it or not um, because as I found out probably later in my racing career, there's a hell of a lot of other factors involved um, which, you know, for better or worse uh, are there um, and you can't hide from them. And, 
you know, the, one of the the biggest things to try and get that dream is you have you have to go to Europe. Um, there's no there's no way around it, and often that means you have to go to Europe at a very young age, like myself. And and you know, you you do have to sacrifice a lot of things. So yeah, I think in terms of the F1 dream, it it probably didn't. I didn't want to start chasing it really until I actually first moved to Europe. Um, until that point, you know, I I think I wanted. I just wanted to become a professional in in motorsport. Uh, I didn't really mind which category because you know driving a race car for a living sounds pretty cool yeah. to me. It still does sound <laughs> pretty cool. Yeah. It it didn't suddenly go okay. Now I'm you know now I'm going to F1. You know the competition over there is is so tough, and you know there's still so many categories to go through to get to F1 that you know you never really know if it's if it's going to be a realistic goal. And I guess that's why it's a dream because. Sometimes at times it doesn't seem very realistic. And like you were saying about sacrifices, like so you're a young kid, you're a teenager when you've moved from Melbourne uh, to go to Europe. Did you have anyone else over there? Like did you know people when you live over there or for schooling? Like how does how does it work for people that want to get across to Europe, whether they're from uh, America or from Asia or from Australia, how does a kid go about you know doing it themselves basically? I mean, I don't think there's sort of one magical formula that works. But so, you know, I can only really say what, what we did. And um, so I moved over when I was 14, I think. So January of 2016 with my dad for, the f- I think he was there for the first six months or a bit longer. And, you know, we were living in a pretty small flat. We didn't know anyone there. You know, I was still trying to do school online, which you know, at the time was was nice because it was a break from school, but kind of realised pretty quickly even in that moment and in particular with hindsight that wasn't a sustainable way of going about things so it's you know it certainly wasn't this glamorous moving to Europe you know making friends with everybody it was tough particularly when you know we kind of went to Europe when I was still in karting and you know we didn't really know what the future held whether I'd stay in karting a bit longer go to four or whatever and because at the beginning we didn't really know, you know, how long this European adventure was going to last for. Yeah. Those first six or seven months especially, I obviously had to leave my mom and my sisters at home and, you know, all my friends. So it's, you know, it certainly wasn't an easy challenge and, um, and you know, even now it's, it's not – it's not a particularly glamorous lifestyle, as as cool as it may seem. Um, you know, it's still super tough. Obviously, now I'm older and a bit more independent. So, you know, and because I've been here over now uh, for I think five years, yeah, I've got more of a life here. So it it doesn't feel so alien, I guess, because when I first moved, it did feel weird. But yeah, if you if you want to get to F1, it, you have to be prepared to take that sacrifice. You know, I think Liam Lawson is is another example of that. He, I think he probably moved to Europe. I was speaking to him the other day, actually. He said he moved, I think, three years ago, so a little bit later than me. But at least by the end of your karting career or, you know, nowadays into F4, you need to move over to Europe um, because obviously in Australia we don't have F4 anymore. You know, even if we did have have F4 and when we did, you need to get in front of, of all the European eyes, basically, in motorsport and if you if you want to keep going down that route, you've you've got to move there at some point. Um, so you know why not do it earlier? It's just a sacrifice you have to make, and you know I think that's sort of the disadvantage, if you will, of, of coming from Australia is um, you know you fortunately have to pack everything up and, and leave. 
which I think is probably part of the reason why we're we often do so well because we know that how much we've given up for yeah. it. If any adversity comes our way, we can deal with it. Do you remember your first uh, race car laps? Like, so you've gone from karting, so you've gone from Australian karting into European karting with the Ricky Flynn team, and then you've gone into uh, Formula Four. Like, do you remember what it's like going from a kart to being basically strapped into something you're not used to? Uh, vision straight away, I imagine, is um, is a lot tougher. Uh, G forces, the braking. Like, how does it sort of compare going from a kart into a race car? Yeah, it was a very very different experience. That was also reconfirmed to me when I went back into a go kart last year for the first time in a while. You know, I think the first sort of thing that strikes you is is obviously you've got seatbelts. You've got to do it yeah. very tight so you don't get thrown around and also for safety, obviously, but mainly so you don't get thrown around in the car. Like you said, you can't see that much. You can probably move your head 30 degrees each side, maybe 45 if you're lucky, but, you know, you certainly, there's certainly no looking behind. You've got mirrors. Uh, everything's big. It's loud. You've got to wear earplugs. Um, someone talking you know, to you you've got a, someone talking to you for the first time basically too yeah you got someone talking to you so you know it's it's a it's a big step and also just the experience of driving a car compared to a go-kart is is much different in some ways it's it's actually more calm particularly in the lower categories like f4 because the cars okay it's it's quick on the straights but relative to the size of the track it's not particularly quick so you know the straights are a lot longer and then karting, the the corner sequences are, are happening much slower in terms of you know duration through corners. But obviously, when you look at the speed you're doing through the corners, it's a hell of a lot quicker. I think the, the easiest way to find out just how quick you're going is when it goes wrong and hopefully there's no walls around. That catches your attention. And in some ways, like I said, it, it actually feels a bit slower. I think compared to karting, there was much more of a sort of technique involved in in cars i think in karting obviously there's a lot of techniques involved and you've got a i think a general a generally good technique is to be smooth in karting you know i think you can there's a few exceptions to that throughout throughout the years but in general i think that's probably the best way of going about things whereas in f4 and and any race car really you, you know, you can't be throwing the car around, having it sideways all the time, particularly not with wings. Um, they don't really like to be driven sideways. So you've got to learn how to brake completely differently. Yeah, it was it was a big step. And the simulators that you guys can drive these days, how much does that help a development? So you've, you've had to drive in a Formula 1 car now, which, you know, not many drivers in the world have actually been fortunate enough to drive a Formula 1 car. So what are your first laps like? And from the simulator training that you get uh, access to, like how realistic are those things these days? In terms of the the F1 sim versus the real thing, you know, it's very, very close to being identical. I was actually blown away the first time I jumped in the real thing because I'd been in the sim, I think, a couple of weeks before and, yeah, jumped in the real thing. And once I got up to speed, I went, oh, shit, you know, some of these things were actually happening in the sim or most of these things so obviously that's the pinnacle of of how realistic it can get but i think you know even even in f2 for example we're working on the sim pretty hard most of the year to try and improve it it's it's a little bit more tricky in like the lower categories because obviously in f1 the the team builds the car themselves um so they have access to literally everything they want for the sim whereas in you know all the other categories 
that you know we get given the car and you know we don't have sensors on that many things so some of it is is a bit of a guessing game on the sim um so it's not a hundred percent realistic but it's you know certainly helpful maybe not necessarily for learning driving techniques i think at the beginning it it can be when you go from cars to cars because you know you still have to learn how to firstly brake a lot harder than a yeah. go-kart and the braking shape um so you know, in a single seater, it's and it's different for, for you know whether you're in a, a V8 supercar or a single seater, a GT car, whatever. Yeah, but in a single seater, you you have to smash the pedal basically when the brake pedal when you you first hit it, and then slowly bleed off because firstly you know you can't keep the same brake pressure as you're turning just because of the, the front brakes and you know you lock the inside front, but also because the most downforce is acting on the car when you hit the brakes uh, or when you're at the highest speed. Um, naturally the car can't cope with the same braking force at lower speeds so i think in terms of stuff like that the sim is a very good tool for developing that side of things but i think once you get you know sort of to the higher levels and you, you know you know how to drive a race car and you're competitive at, and and you know winning stuff i think it's much more helpful for learning tracks and you know in f2 and f3's case we get think six days of testing through the year and you know they're in two three-day blocks so it's basically two big tests at two tracks and then we have 45 minutes of practice every weekend and then we're straight into qualifying on a softer set of tires in f2's case so you know you don't have much time to learn and i think that's where the sim is really helpful in the, the lower categories to be honest with you the, the way the pirelli tires work you know you get more or less five laps in practice um, because we can't do consecutive laps uh, not for performance yeah. runs anyway not if you're trying to chase qualifying pace and really those first three are the ones where the tires are still you know still possible to do a quick lap so anything you can do to speed up that learning process and not you know eat into those laps is critical that's huge now i'll finish up i've got a member's question here uh gabby's asked what's the most important quality needed to be a successful driver? Oof, that's a very good question. I think, first of all, in karting being smooth, I think it's almost even, it translates well into cars as well because, you know, you can't be coming into corners sideways, blocking the rears, just chucking the car around because it, it just doesn't work. You'll either end up with no tyres left on the car or, you know, from either overheating them or from being stuck in a wall. So that definitely does translate throughout the whole range. I think just working hard at it is still, you know, regardless of, of any sport really, is still the number one thing that gives you a much better chance. And, you know, like I said, I could get on the pace pretty quickly from the beginning, but it took that extra year or two to finally get there. I think now with the tools available, particularly, you know, when it gets more serious with data analysis, a lot more in carding now, working hard at doing laps firstly, but also making sure you're getting something from doing those laps, not just going around for the sake of them is an important one. And yeah, I guess just having a, a bit of a plan of how you want to improve, basically. When I was in carding, I, I think my dad probably did that a lot for me in terms of you know we used to go to the track probably every second weekend or so to go practicing and and you know this is where it also comes in like i never went 
testing on weekdays. I always went to school besides the race weekend. So, you know, you don't have to have a Wednesday and go, oh, you know, I need to go to the track, especially if you're a young kid. Um, you know, school is still very important. Working hard, but also, you know, on your testing days that you have, you've got to make the most of, of you know, the time you have there and make it as efficient as possible because you could spend five days of testing, you know, with no plan, just doing laps and hoping something gets better. Or you could do, you know, maybe two days of testing or, you know, with somebody like yourself and having a coach there or whatever, have two days of testing. And, you know, you'll probably learn the same amount if you attack it with a plan of, you know, I want to test this actual, I want to, you know, get better at driving this corner or whatever. And I think with data analysis nowadays, whilst it can be a little bit boring at times, I admit it's the best way and it's data, it's yeah. it's real, It's there's no doubt about whether it's you know whether dad's looking at it from a different angle to someone else and oh you know they're pulling a cart link yeah. here cart link there it tells you if you're quicker or slower so with those tools available now i think learning how to use those and particularly data analysis in car racing is a you know a massive part of it, it i guess it's a bit of the saying you know work smarter not harder yeah. you've got to put in the time but also you've got to make sure that you're using your time well because Firstly, it's you know it, you get up to speed quicker, which everyone wants, and secondly, it leaves a lot less head scratching and frustration, I guess. And you know, it, it doesn't. It's not always going to be a quick and easy process to try and improve, but it's going to be a hell of a lot easier if you attack it with a plan than if you go into things, you know, just hoping for the best. Looking at all of those things and and you know having a bit of a plan and structure, I guess, to, to how you want to improve yourself is a really big aspect of it. If you want to talk about car racing, then I think, you know, working with the team and the engineer because, you know, even in karting there's an extent of, of setup um, and the setup can, is, is still very important in karting, but in cars it's a whole different ball ballgame. Um, you know, you've got, you've got springs on the car, you've got dampers, you've got wings, you've got all sorts of stuff. Um, so, you know, making sure that you and your team communicate well. Um, and, you know, this all stems from from being able to analyze data and having some planning and structure yep. and stuff. In cars, that only gets amplified even more because instead of being able to go to the track every weekend or whenever you want, you know, you've got, like I said, in F2, we've got six test days to try stuff. So we have to be structured about it, planned about it, and be able to work efficiently and not waste time, basically. So nobody on the grid is is there from just talent. You know, even some people might say, look at Max Verstappen, he's, you know, he's a wonder kid who didn't need anything. That's not true at all. He still worked his butt off. I know some engineers that um, have worked with him when he first went into cars, uh, and they said, yeah, you know, he's, he is obviously massively talented and we all know that, but, you know, he's had to develop himself as well. And not maybe not necessarily in, in the driving side of things, because you know, I think he's, he's probably one of the quickest guys ever. But, you know, I think we saw even in, in F1, when he first get to, got to F1, he had to work on a lot of other aspects of his career. Um, he was crashing quite a lot pretty inconsistent so that all stems down to hard work and wanting to improve himself as well so even if it's not necessarily the driving side of things it's you know working hard you know having a plan to improve yourself applies to all aspects of of motorsport no that's awesome that's good advice 
You're knocking on the doorstep of Formula One. Is there any chance we're going to see a Piastri cart one day? I've just seen Lando Norris has released the cart. <laughs> Could we see a Piastri cart one day? Yeah, I, I don't really know because in karting, in, like in Australia, I was, I was, I, I had some decent success. I think I won two state titles, finished on the podium in a couple of national titles. But you know, I certainly didn't win everything, um, and I only started winning in probably the last two or three years that I was in Australia. And then, you know, when I went to Europe, I, I didn't win anything. I didn't, I don't think I ever finished on the podium for that year. So, you know, I don't really know if I have the karting <laughs> career to be able to, to put my name on a go-kart, to be completely honest. But, you know, that's also another point, I guess, is, you know, success in karting doesn't necessarily translate to success in cars. Um, and I think I'm, you know, quite a, good example of that okay i was was still up the front and you still have to be at the front in carving you can't come from absolutely nowhere and, and expect to be quick in cars but you know i think i'm sort of the the representative of that of you know my european carding season was nothing particularly special you know i was sort of there in the top 10 thereabouts which you know from australia i guess that's, that's a big achievement still it's an achievement but you know i think when you go to europe and and you're competitive enough and you're driven enough, you, you want to win no matter who it's against. And another important thing to remember is these guys in Europe, they're no better than anyone in Australia. We're perfectly capable of beating them. Yep. But going back to your question of a piastri card, I'm not sure if my card and career quite was good enough for a piastri card, to be honest. Let's win a world championship in Formula 1, then we'll worry about the go-karts, eh? Exactly. Then we'll start thinking about it. Now, nah, awesome. Look, I really appreciate your time. Uh, yeah, giving up uh, throughout your busy schedule through Formula Two, and yeah, wish you all the best with your uh, upcoming season or the finishing up of the season, and uh, hopefully in your future F1 success. And thanks on behalf of the Cart Class listeners. Thanks very much, Oscar Piastri. No worries. Thanks, Dave. If you've enjoyed today's episode and want to learn more about your kart racing, be sure to check out kartclass.com.au for driving courses catered to all skill levels.